Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Richard Haas has a very busy Monday morning because he is at the center of a raging debate of the past in Afghanistan. He's at the Council on Foreign Relations. I can't say enough about their website this morning to give you depth. And also my book of the summer, a number of summers ago, The World, A Brief Introduction. I would suggest Ambassador Haas, it needs an update. Richard Haas, I want to get right to it and I want to get to the movement forward as I'll speak to Thomas Barfield uh, coming up. Is this Taliban the same as the Taliban of 2002? If anything, it's worse, Tom, because now it's had the chance to regroup. It now has access to American arms, and it, it, it's proven its, its resilience. And the opposition in Afghanistan is, if anything, weaker than it was. So it's at least as bad. There's no sign, what you might say, of any mellowing by the Taliban. A careful read of Richard Haas. The world is a vacuum gets filled. It's Physics 101, Ambassador Haas. I know you took three courses in physics in Oberlin <laughs> a few uh, years ago. Is the vacuum going to be filled by China with a 47-mile border they have constructed by the British in 1895? No, the Chinese don't want to get into Afghanistan. What they want, Tom, is to keep essentially Afghanistan out of China. They are worried about their own Muslim minorities. The last thing they want is for them to be uh, radicalized. Indeed, none of the neighbors, with the exception of Pakistan, I think, has a lot of appetite right. for getting into Afghanistan. They want to keep its terrorists. They want to keep its guns. They want to keep its drugs out of their country. Also, one other thing, they're worried about refugee flows, and that's the other mm -hmm. thing that people are going to be focused on. Let's swing 500 miles west to Iran and the, and the, the wonderful frontline effort that was done a number of uh, weeks ago uh, there. It is Sunni and it is Shia. Is that ultimately what this will be about? No, again, I don't see particular friction there between Iran and, and Afghanistan. We've got problems with uh, Iran, uh, but that's to do with everything they're doing in the region, their nuclear program. This is, uh, look, Iran has been helpful in the past. 20 years ago, Tom, the Iranians were actually helpful in standing up a post-Taliban uh, government in Afghanistan. Why? They want a stable neighbor. They don't want one that's producing and exporting uh, drugs. So I don't think Iran is the place to look either for the problem here or for the solution. So, Richard, where do we look? Do we look to the allies who feel somewhat betrayed by the U.S.? No, the answer is there is no solution to look for. This is now the new reality in, in Afghanistan. It's going to be awful, awful for Afghans. The danger is they invite terrorists back in or terrorists invite them, themselves back in. Obviously, America's reputation for consistency and reliability has taken a hit. I worry about the long-term consequences for Pakistan. It's ironic. Pakistan provided a sanctuary which kept the Taliban alive, helped bring us to this point. It's quite possible some in the Taliban may now want to go ahead and further radicalize Pakistan. So in the medium to long run, I would, I would worry about that. But I think for the United States, the focus has got to be on getting as many Afghans who work with us out of that country. It's outrageous that we would leave them behind, that we would uh, abandon them. And then I think we have to go around the world trying to demonstrate that the awful scenes that we're seeing in Afghanistan are not somehow representative of the totality of American foreign policy. We've got to persuade people that they should not read too much into this. 
Richard, a lot of uh, officials have said this is not a war we could win. We basically were keeping the peace and sacrificing American soldiers and, frankly, soldiers of the Allies to keep a peace that was unnatural in this nation. What do you say to counter that, why it was important, in your view, for U.S. troops to remain in Afghanistan at a much lower uh, rate than they had been, say, five, ten years ago? Look, we had reduced the U.S. military presence to around 3,000. There hasn't been an American combat death for, for 18 months. So this was a situation, I thought, that for a relatively modest investment, we were getting good results. The American presence was essential to keep the eight, 9,000 Allied troops there, and it provided a psychological and military floor for the, the Afghans. So no, it wasn't going to give you peace. It wasn't going to give you a military victory. What it was going to do is avoid bringing about exactly what we're seeing on our screens. And I, I think sometimes in foreign policy, you've got to measure success, not by what you accomplish, but, but, but by what you avert. And by that definition, this was a success, and we undermined our own policy. Richard Haas, with all of your experience, this comes back to, and it's of our childhood, Scoop Jackson of Washington State, and maybe on to the late Donald Rumsfeld and others. It's this thing called neoconservatism. How did the neoconservative crew pick up the pieces in your Washington? Well, I'm not sure neoconservatives matter a whole lot right now because they have an, an ambitious foreign policy. They want to transform the world. They often want the United States to act alone. I would think, Tom, the biggest challenge for the United States right now, and by the way, it crosses party lines, just like Afghanistan policy mm -hmm. was something that crossed party lines, is that we do too little, that the United States essentially pulls back from the world focuses on our challenges here at home uh, and essentially underreaches in the world. And if I were if I were if I had a crystal ball, I would be more worried about American underreach going forward than overreach. Well, I mean, to, to go to Zakaria's post-American world, what does our post-Afghanistan world look like? Well, in Afghanistan, it looks horrific. Uh, you know, around the rest of the world, that's up for that's still for us to determine. Are we going to stand by our allies? Are we going to stand up to Russia and China? Are we going to actually do more to combat climate change, to improve global health machinery? There's nothing about Afghanistan, Tom, that stops us from increasing our exports of COVID vaccines. There's nothing about Afghanistan, Tom, that stops us from joining the Asia-Pacific regional trade agreements. I can go on. So again, I disagree fundamentally with what the last administration and this one have done in Afghanistan, but that doesn't stop us from doing other smart things in the world. Richard, just to sort of put a bow on this, you were talking about this concern about allies and the perception of the United States and the trustworthiness of some of the assertions and involvement that the U.S. has had. You're concerned about under-involvement with some of these other initiatives that you're talking about, whether it's combating global warming, whether it's combating the pandemic, how much clout has President Biden lost on the international stage among allies who already are somewhat skeptical of the U.S. promises? Look, this is, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. This is, this is a bad thing. He gained some clout by the original response to COVID, increasing vaccine production and distribution. He gained clout by the performance of the U.S. economy. This is clearly a, a setback. That said, he's got three and a half years to, to go to, to, to make a record, but there's no way this is anything but something significant in the deficit columns. This, this, this will hurt both the reality and the perception of the United States and the world. And it reinforces a narrative that was already out there, which is that this United States is different than the old United States that had tremendous staying power throughout the Cold War.
Richard, tremendous piece in Project Syndicate over the weekend. Thank you for writing that. Before we let you go, a message for this administration. We've heard a limited amount from the president over the weekend. What's your number one question for them this morning? What more can they do to help these Afghans who are trapped in the country and are vulnerable? It's, I just find that I, I, I find it painful to, to watch. So I think we've got to do more to help them. We can't simply be focused on getting Americans out. And then the real question is what we've been talking about here. How, do we, how does this administration prove to the world that American foreign policy should not be understood through this lens or, or prism? We have got to be active and we've got to be smart elsewhere. We can't undo the mistakes we've made in Afghanistan. Let's be blunt. Doesn't mean, though, we have to make mistakes elsewhere. Important words this morning. Richard, thank you. Richard Haas there, Council <coughs> on Foreign Relations President. Right now we're going to digress with Christopher Morangi. He's with Gabelli Funds, their chief investment officer of where the value is right now. Chris Morangi, where is the value going into September of 2021? Well, it's certainly harder to find than a year ago, but there is still value out there in the market. And the question is, is now the time to jump back in the reflation trade if you missed it uh, you know, nine months ago? And I think typically, yes, there are some areas that were um, perhaps exuberant uh, and have now uh, corrected. Um, we still like areas like live entertainment, which we, we think will come back strongly again uh, this fall into next year, um, you know, as well as... Uh, the consumer impulse to purchase is still there. Um, obviously, as we heard from Mike McKee, you know, some supply chain issues which are constraining the ability to meet that demand. You've got, and folks on radio, you need to understand that the secret weapon of Christopher Morangi is all the manila folders he's got over his left shoulder covering every company out there. What is the, the knowledge base that you and Mario Gabelli have right now, company to company? Do you have a confidence in what you're hearing, or is it a mystery for you into the next round of conference calls? Yeah, so, you know, we don't put a lot of weight in and things like the Empire Index, we you know we're, we're listening to what companies are saying on their conference calls. And what are they saying? In some of those meetings, and and it's pretty much universally the demand is there. It's hard to meet that demand. Um, supply chain issues affecting not just manufacturing companies, but you know service companies that just can't get the stuff to install in people's homes, for example. And and the concern, one concern is is that could worsen as uh, as the rest of the world, as China and Asia in particular, you know, deal with the the Delta variant. How concerned are you about margin pressures? This seems to be one of the dividing factors between the bulls and the bears, the less bullish uh, for U.S. equities. Yeah, you know, the we tend to focus. We we love companies, obviously, that have uh, pricing power. We've always focused on those kind of companies. Um, you know, companies with that control scarce resources, whether that's uh, you know broadband, um, consumer branded products. Um, waste collection, et cetera. And, um, you know, they've been able to, to, to take price and pass some of that price through and maintain margin. But yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard. You know, a lot of companies benefited in the first and second quarter from the tailwinds of cutting costs deeply uh, in the crisis a year ago. And now those costs are going to start coming back and so it, it, it is something that we're watching and we're a little concerned about for the next year. I know that you're focused on value. Right now, we're hearing a real bifurcation between those who say it's time to keep leaning into the cyclical <clears> trade, <throat> especially after the under, underperformance of late, and others who say stick with big tech, stick with some of these names that just have incredible amounts of cash and relatively uh, small staffs compared to the overall revenue. Where do you weigh in on this and why? 
yeah, you know, I, I tend to lead toward the former that, that there's still some legs to the to the cyclical trade. Um, you know, there are you know a few specific big tech names, uh, Google in particular, which we own, um, that actually benefit from both sides. They are a, both a reopening play and a quarantine play, <clears throat> if you can do both things. Uh, you know, they are a major beneficiary of the return of advertising, particularly as it relates to things like travel. Um, and so, um, you know, you have to look company by company and not just make judgments about individual sectors, which is why I have all these manila folders here. That's good. Well, let's make a judgment about one of the wheelhouses of Gabelli over the years, and that is this whole entertainment, streaming, telephone, cell phone infrastructure. I mean, you guys are way out front on what John Malone wrought. Where are you now on all that stuff that we use every day? Yeah, so, you know, we used to define the world as distribution versus content. Um, you know, that's a little bit of a, of a, of a fake um, uh, break, but still think distribution is, is very important. The broadband companies high pricing power. The worry has been and always will be, what does the government do about that? And so far, you know, the, broad, the infrastructure bill is probably a net positive for the broadband companies to the extent that it funds, you know, additional build out and gets them additional customers. But, but that regulatory uh, sort of Damocles is out there. Uh, and, and obviously the, the Biden administration seems to uh, be swinging that more aggressively late. On the content side, you know, a lot of questions about what happens with theatrical and the streaming wars continue. It was a little bit of a Lake Wabigon in the second quarter where pretty much all the streaming services did a little bit better than everyone expected. But that's probably going to change. At some point, the consumer will have too many services to choose from. Chris, you mentioned policy, and I do want to sort of end here where we began, which is Afghanistan and how much that actually does put a kink in President Biden's ability to push through his policy, to push through his three and a half trillion dollar human infrastructure bill, let alone the bipartisan bill uh, that has about five hundred fifty billion dollars of spending. How are you looking at this? Are you trading on this in any way? Yeah, you know, I think one of the when um, when it became probable that Biden would get elected and was in fact elected, we anticipated higher uh, tax rates and built those into our you know, company models. And obviously we haven't seen that just yet. You know, there'll have to be pay force in the, in the reconciliation. And so tax rates are going to go up, um, but I think they probably go up less than maybe we expected a, a year ago. Uh, and so that's a sort of a plus, uh, uh, um, but you know, this is gonna put additional pressure on inflation, which we look at. And um, you know, I think we mentioned Afghanistan, Hard to price that directly into the market, but you know probably some additional defense spending and the risk premium in general just has to go up. Chris Morangi back in the office. Good to see you there, Chris. It's good to catch you up. Chris Morangi there, Gabelli Funds, the co-CIO of Value. Let's get to the discussion right now. What we're going to do here is really focus uh, on setting up your end of August here into the end of the third quarter in September. No one better to do that uh, than with someone managing real money. Noel Corum is at Invesco. And what's really interesting to me, Noel, you're in the crosshairs, the hardest part of the market right now, which is intermediate bonds. What are you doing on the duration bet right now as you, by portfolio mandate, are caught in the crosshairs of this market? Right. So on the duration mandate, we're staying largely close to neutral. I think it makes sense to have a bit of a steepener on here um, if you have more of a multi-sector account. Um, but from the duration standpoint, in inter our intermediate bond fund, we're staying close to neutral. And then we would recommend for high yield uh, portfolio managers to add some defensive or, you know, maybe 
um, other um, growth-related asset managers to add some defensive assets here like the intermediate bond fund or investment grade. Um, just because there are, like you you are, were just referring to, a lot of looming uncertainties around. And you said the, the bond market is not reacting. It's all it's because we're waiting on Wednesday or waiting on the FOMC minutes and the taper, the big taper debate on timing. We are starting to see some discrimination just in terms of credit quality and the degree to which you are exposed to things like the Delta variant, Noel. Is that encouraging for you? Is that a healthy sign that the credit market is functioning that way? So we, we are seeing it. So earning the earnings season was very healthy. Earnings growth was very strong. Um, where that strength came in was a little bit bifurcated, but we expect overall the earnings growth to continue and to and deleveraging to continue. The Delta variant, we have to watch very closely, of course. We don't see it necessarily impacting our base case for growth. Really, the, the most impact has been the, the supply disruptions from it, um, and that's something that we have to watch closely. But the demand is still there. So ultimately, that just kind of maybe flattens the trajectory of growth, but it doesn't necessarily take it away. Does it make sense, Noel, to then that high yield bonds are underperforming investment grade? The high yield bonds, yes, for um, for most of this year, high yield bonds have done really well. Triple C's have done really well. Premium in new issue um, has not necessarily uh, been very attractive lately, and I think that's why we're seeing some of that. Um, that peel back in in high yield bonds. Just taking a, a broader step back, Mark Howard of BNP Pariba was on the show earlier and he was saying that right now there is no problem. You can keep leaning into risk. But longer term, we're setting ourselves up for some inequalities within the markets and potential, I don't want to say bubbles, but bubbles, uh, particularly with respect to certain credit borrowing. What's your sense of that? Do you agree that this is going to become a serious problem in a couple years time? So it is something that we definitely have to watch and could be a problem in a couple of years time. But what we're watching, I'd say over the next three to six months after we get the taper announcement out of the way and, you know, whether or not it's going to be a taper tantrum and whether or not we learn from history is up for debate. But um, in the next three to six months, we do want to stay nimble here because that's when the Fed hikes start to get priced in. That's when the market turns to focus on the actual FOMC mandate. So employment coming down and whether or not inflation is going to be transitory and how sticky those sticking components just can really be. So walk me through your approach to floating rate with that in mind, Noel. What is it? So I'd, right now I'd have a little bit of floating rate just to uh, kind of take some down some of your exposure to high yield um, because there still is you're still getting compensated there. The demand and technicals there are still very strong, still seeing foreign demand in both floating rate and investment grade and some crossover in high yield. So I think it makes sense to diversify. I'm always kind of selling the diversification picture because it does make sense here. There's still a little bit of value to to be um, had in the floating rate. Is world. that a hedge or conviction about the future, Noel? Conviction about higher rates or a hedge <laughs> that we might get them? Um, I think we're going to see higher rates from here. It's just going to be a little bit messier um, than, you know, over the next several weeks, we just have a lot of uncertainty and um, that's going to be definitely something to watch. If we get past the taper and it kind of uh, is quiet, then I'd expect the rates to continue to steepen out because we do continue to expect growth to be robust. And that's ultimately going to push uh, this curve steeper. 
What is the goal over the next three to five years? Is it to clip a coupon or can you actually find total return? I think you can find total return, but it's going to be more on a sector basis um, or specific bond basis. Uh, but uh, over the next three to five years, while the, the you know, of course, when we get into the five-year scenario, it's hard, of course, to call that far out. But the ultimate goal would be to clip the coupon, diversify, mm -hmm. add where there is value and complacency within markets and uh, complacency within sectors. Noel, we've got to leave it there. It's got to catch up Thank on this fixed Noel. income market. Noel Coram there, Invesco Portfolio Manager. What we've always tried to do here is John, Lisa, and I are committed to bringing you the experts. You know on China, folks, that the expert is Jonathan Spence in his classic, The Search for Modern China. What is the search for modern China for Afghanistan? It is Thomas Barfield out of Penn and Harvard holding court in anthropology at Boston University, and he's president of the American Institute for Afghanistan Studies in his red-covered book, A Cultural and Political History. Trust me, folks, this is the absolute singular one volume on the real Afghanistan. Professor Barfield, thank you so much for joining us. We're honored. I must ask, of the people of your institute. Are they safe in Afghanistan? Uh, we don't know. My director uh, got out to Delhi um, last week, and we're trying to move our staff there. They have visas, but, uh, you know, all air traffic is gone. So uh, they're in safe houses in Kabul, but we're watching to mm -hmm. see what's, what's going to happen. Professor Barfield, just because of time, I've got to get to the advanced moment as we wait to hear from the president in the coming hours or days. Is there a risk here of a Sunni-Shia civil war among the tribes that you are expert on, including the Taliban and their dominance versus to the West, the Hazari and their relationship with Iran? Uh, probably not, because the Hazars are, are too weak to take on uh, a central government. And also, they're in the center of the country. They don't border Iran. It's difficult to run an insurgency mm -hmm. if you don't have a sanctuary, as the Taliban did in Pakistan. Is this the same Taliban as 20 years ago, or is it so different now you need to brief us on that distinction? That is what everybody is waiting to see. Um, the talk out of Doha is smoother. Um, their opposition to even photographs and television, you know, in the 1990s, now they're very media savvy. Uh, their big problem is, all right, they've taken over the country. How do you govern it? And they lack the capacity to govern. And the question is, what kind of compromises are they willing to make to keep the country functioning so that they can, you know, have their ideology uh, predominant and not devolve into a civil war. Professor, that's exactly where I wanted to go, and I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that. I was reading reports of civil servants just not showing up to work because they were worried about the Taliban and how they would be treated. The Taliban said, please come back to work, try to restore confidence. They didn't all come back to work, and then they started to take a harder line, and people started to come back out of fear. The reports really highlight the difficulty in ruling out of fear. Do you see any signs that the Taliban is adjusting strategy or trying to consolidate power against uh, uh, behind a ruler who can actually uh, impose some sort of discipline and also some sort of respect in the population? Well, we don't even know who the Taliban ruler is. 
right? So one of the things we're looking for is what is a Taliban government? In the 1990s, Mullah Omar never even came to Kabul. He ran Afghanistan sort of out of his bedroom in Kandahar. All right, so you had a government in Kabul and the guy that led it not even bothering to show up in the capital. The other thing is, if you go back, Afghanistan has seen these transitions before. When the Soviet-backed regime fell, essentially the bureaucrats went to work for the Mujahideen. So a lot of the fear right now <clears throat> is how are we going to be treated as the civil servants? Yeah. But, but I, I remember being in Peshawar when the Mujahideen shadow minister of agriculture, I wanted some statistics. He says, I'll ask the ministry in, in Kabul. I said, how can you do that? He says, they serve whatever government mm-hmm. is in power. And he got the statistics he wanted. And they sent him a little message. You come to power, remember, we're sort right. of a permanent bureaucracy. So we're, wa- we're watching. That's, it's just unknowable because it's happened so fast. Uh, Thomas Barfield, there is a professor at Boston University by the name of Basevich who has sacrificed his son to these wars. And the distance from Basevich to Barfield is a distance of, can we export liberal democracy? Have we learned a final lesson here in this debacle that we cannot export liberal democracy at the risk of our soldiers and at the risk of our debt and deficit? I would say probably not. We probably learned a lesson for the next 10 years. But it's like the British who got badly burned in the first Anglo-Afghan war Mm -hmm. and said they'd never go back. And in 1880, they reinvaded it and then decided it was not a good idea and went back out. Countries like people, kind of, as, as things fade, tend sometimes not to remember the things they should. Are the Taliban tribal? Your definitive work is the anthropology of Afghanistan. Is the Taliban part of the tribes that you write about? No. That's one of their advantages because they're not tribal they can bring all of these tribes that would otherwise be rivals with one another, and they call for unity in the name of God, who can resist God. I mean, the Taliban in the 1990s was the first government in Afghan history that was ruled by mullahs. Um, but the advantage they had was they could say, we do not represent tribe or regional interest, even if you dug down a little bit, and maybe they did. Um, and they seem to have uh, was really surprising this time because it's historically, and I was still looking at the interviews that leaders are speaking in Pashto, but they took the north first. That's the non-Pashtun region of the country. The Ashraf Ghani regime had to do something really bad to alienate all the non-Pashtuns in the north so that they were willing to uh, ally with, mm-hmm. with, with, with the Taliban. So um, it, it, it's, it's not tribal. A much-needed level of detail there from Thomas Barfield. Thomas, thank you, sir. Professor of Anthropology at Boston University and President of the American Institute for Afghanistan Studies. There is no one, and I mean no one, in the investment community who is educated on what experts think about SARS about avian influenza, and about the present pandemic than David Kotak of Pennsylvania and Florida. He's somewhere out west right now singing John Denver songs, and he joins us here from Cumberland Advisors. David, your latest uh, memo is striking for the three articles you attach on pediatric hospitalizations. Bonus, you're living this in Florida. 
What have you learned? We've learned that uncertainty is a powerful forecasting tool. It tells you nothing. Risk is one thing. You can estimate it. You can have science. You can measure things. You can create probabilities. Uncertainty does not permit that. We are living in uncertainty with Delta and the variants, and we have a massive failure in the public health system in the United States and most of the world. And that was the conclusion, right. Tom and Lisa, in Maine. Uh, David Kotak, when I look at when I when I look at where we are right now, it dovetails into economic data like Empire Manufacturing, which was very very weak. Are you pricing in your view for a slowdown or disappointment in GDP? The answer is yes, and the sentiment indicators that just came out drive that home very strongly in our. Portfolios in our U.S. ETF models, we are up to 28% cash, and we have doubled the market weight of the entire healthcare sector in the broad sense of the word, because we believe that the variant evolution and public health demands on the healthcare system and the companies that provide the resources to fight COVID are going to go on for several years. So the answer is yes. David, 28% cash at a time when bulls can't get bullish enough and are upgrading their forecasts. What's the trigger? What's the catalyst to cause a sell-off that could actually uh, allow you to deploy some of that cash? Uh, We don't know. We're looking at the sentiment collapse, Lisa. That was a very strong Michigan data. And it also captured the huge political divide in the country when you dissected the data. And what do we know from Neil Ferguson's wonderful work, which Bloomberg has helped tell the world about? Every single pandemic has led to a recession following it, and every single pandemic has led to major structural political change and geopolitical events. There's been no exception in history. Neil established that in his work. And we don't know. We're uncertain as to what's going to come in this structure. But we do know something is going to come. It's major changes. I don't buy the two-month recession we just had, but the NBER said it's over. I don't think we've had the shock yet. Well, what would you say to people who look at corporate earnings and say they're phenomenal, who look at the fact that rates are going to be low for a very long time and say there is no alternative? I mean, there are some strong arguments for risk right now, no? I I would agree with that. And when uncertainty gives way to some risk and we can begin to measure more impacts, the answer would be yes. We just had a quarter where we had over $50 in earnings out of the S&P and the trend is higher. By the way, when you shift labor share away because you have sick people and dead people and reluctant people to work, you alter the mix between capital and labor. We're doing that. Capital wins. There's winners and losers in pandemics. And the stock market's one of the winners. I can see a longer term trajectory for the stock market to six or seven thousand with three hundred dollars in earnings. David, I don't care who caught the biggest fish. 
<laughs> oh, oh, I can't go to that one because that one creates a, a bunch of opinions. Let's just say we had great fishing, great conversations, and it was a nice to have the gathering back. If I can add one very quick thing, please, we quick. Had 100, 100% vaccine passport requirement, guides, lodge, and guests. If they didn't want to conform, they couldn't come. And right. everybody was a team player from all over the country. David Kotak, stay healthy. David Kotak, Cumberland Advisors, CIO, and truly the streets experts on collating, coalescing in all of this research on these medical uh, issues. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.